apps of corporate and investment banking lead the conversation on future investment possibilities and sustainable growth opportunities in agriculture. Globally, food prices are going up. This isn't just a South Africa phenomenon. There's something happening in the world when it comes to food inflation. First, we are starting to see the impact of that. I mean, their figures just came out of status say, showing their food price inflation for April. You will see that we are at the highest level since July 2017. Matching foresight with sustainable possibilities to unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. Well, for South Africans, there are three horsemen of the inflation apocalypse. There is, of course, the petrol price. There is the 15% electricity prices. And then there is food inflation. These are the things that cost South Africans most of their monthly salary check and more, as lots of people live in debt. Agricultural economist Wandile Sikhoba with us. And it's been such a great season, Wandile. We've had really good maize crops. We look like we're going to have a fairly decent wheat crop. The fruit crops are looking really, really good across the the Western Cape, for example, the citrus industry is booming um, and things are looking really good. Yet globally, food prices are going up. This isn't just a South Africa phenomenon. There's something happening in the world when it comes to food inflation. Yeah, absolutely. And Bruce, we are starting to see the impact of that also even on a domestic side. I mean, their figures just came out of status say showing their food price inflation for April 2021 you will see that we are at the highest level since July 2017. And that is pretty much being pushed up by those global factors. What we're observing globally is the drier conditions in South America, particularly Brazil and Argentina. But also in the U.S., we are seeing some bit of dryness in Canada. And those two combined, obviously, with what's happening in China, which is that strong buying uh, pressure for grains and all various agricultural commodities, is what we see driving the global prices and obviously being mirrored also in the domestic market. And we kind of think of agriculture as a local activity, and it may be a local activity, but it's a globally priced activity. These are commodities that are traded internationally, and prices are set, not necessarily, you know, some prices may be set on the Joburg fresh produce market, but the vast majority of food prices, the base of food, is set on supply and demand. Yeah, absolutely. And South Africa is solidly interlinked on that, particularly for uh, commodities that we are the major participants on. You mentioned some, our fruit sector, but the grains, I mean, if you look at the correlations just of the prices of grains of domestic market, as well as globally, you will see those correlations are somewhere around about 80%. What happens globally matters a lot for us. And it then talks to the investment case for South African agriculture, sub-Saharan African agriculture, frankly. One thing that the African continent has got in a abundance is great fertile land, much of it underutilized. And it's got to be one of this century's great opportunities. I mean, it is an opportunity, not not only just in the region, but even in South Africa. I mean, as we speak now, I would say we still have roughly plus minus 9 million hectares or so of land that we can do some some expansion in agriculture in South Africa alone. And also there's a lot of potential that even lies within the agro-processing side. So there are those opportunities. But I guess one of the key issues is around the policies. They also have to be much more conducive for investments to flow in, particularly if we 
we think about the primary agriculture side, either you are thinking about land policy, either you are thinking about infrastructure needs that are there. And those are the core major things, even for the broader African continent. Land governance uh, remains very poor for a number of countries. Infrastructure to move these commodities uh, amongst countries, the markets are highly fragmented. And I think that if the governments can step up their way on that business, you could see them playing part on filling up some of the gaps. But absolutely, I agree with you. Huge investment gap um, and the population is growing. The demand will remain solid. Uh, I mean, we're headed to a 10 billion global population at some point in the 2050s. One of the reasons why we've got to the level we're at at over 7 billion and why we'll get to 10 billion is courtesy of hybrid crops, courtesy of crops that have been genetically modified. It's a swear word, but it is something that has made the mass production of food reliable and plentiful. Yeah, absolutely. And and Bruce, in there, I would even say that the sentiment is somewhat um, changing now. You will recall that Africa's resistance to genetically modified crops, one way or another, I mean, I, I will say this, I, I think it was largely some of the NGOs that uh, were backed to a certain extent by European countries that actually were against the genetically modified crops to a large extent. But what was interesting is that on the 29th of April this year, the European Commission released a study where they are saying, hey, let's review the genetically modified crops uh, policy for the EU region and actually see what adjustments we can make because now they are noticing that they are falling behind in in, in terms of the gains from South Americans and the US. So that's a hot debate that is happening in the EU. And I think that if there is a change in policy in the EU, we could pretty much see most African countries also following through that. And if they do that, I think there are gains to be seen. Like you rightly said, I mean, we can even contribute now to the climate change story in a sense that you will be able to get more crops, utilize more output from crops, utilizing less land than now where you have to plant tracts and tracts of land and still harvesting very little because you are not embracing technology. About that investment in agriculture. Now, South Africa, of course, over recent years has been held in this this deep uncertainty on on the issue of land reform. You've written your book on it. There have been many issue, lots of studies on the issue. It is a government policy to rightfully restore land to people who are dispossessed with land. And it is an agonizingly painful, uncertain, slow process that causes uncertainty across all sectors of society. If you're somebody with an expectation of land, you're deeply uncertain about the future. If you're somebody who holds land, you're deeply uncertain about the future. Are we making any progress? I think in South Africa, I would say as we speak right now, I am sitting at a point where I I am worried about the near term. And what worries me a lot are, are two things. The ongoing conversation in Parliament regarding Section 25 is one of them. And regardless of what the words that might be proposed in there, and we will know by the end of May on what uh, the words that will be proposed in, in a National Assembly will look like. And, and I think that will add to the very much uncertainty that you are referring to. And the second point that worries me is the fact that there are some in society who say when we deal with land restitution in South Africa, which is claiming where you feel that your ancestors owned a certain piece of land. Some are arguing that we should remove 1913 date, which was um, a down in a form of papers of South Africa, where you open that process for going back to 1600s and so. And that now opens up a fuzzy state where people can 
claim any land parcels of land. As far as it's still under investigation, then that introduces a lot of uncertainties and stuff. But looking long term or medium term, I do think that there are policymakers that we get to speak with, which are seeing both of these risks. So if the political climate of the moment could remain or could be favorable and not take down a downslope on both of those two points that I've mentioned, I think that we could be able to have a much more sustainable way going forward. Because the reality is, Bruce, the state, for example, now has roughly 9 million hectares, which I I, I had uh, highlighted earlier, which if the needs was really on a land hunger side, we could be able to say, how do we roll this up more efficiently um, before we create any further uncertainty for, for uh, economic conditions in the country broadly. Are you suggesting that the issue is not land? The issue is economic participation in the economy rather than actually I would like to own 100 by 100 square meters of land, please, and I would like to spend my days tending crops and, and growing some sheep, uh, for example. Um, in, it, you know, the, there is a political discourse that says that is everybody's right and everybody should have that little piece of land so everybody can go become a subsistence farmer. But globally, the lessons are people want to urbanize and have the bright lights and the fun. Uh, But people are looking to access to the economy. And that's a far greater um, and more serious issue right now, particularly for young people over, you know, 65% of young people can't find jobs. I mean, this is the real crisis. Yeah. And I mean, Bruce, if we were also serious as, as a country about land reform, we'll be able to transfer land rights to people. So I think that there gets to be much more of the political stuff uh, in the mix. I mean, if you think about, say, uh, the 700,000 hectares that President Ramaphosa announced uh, in October 2020, that land is tr- is is listed to people on 30-year lists that are non-tradable and still starved of investments, having to depend on a state putting on some bit of money in there. But if we were determined to say, okay, we want to create a new crop of commercial black farmers, we want to create a new crop of people black industrialists. We could be able to say, okay, I trust you, Sipo, with this piece of land. These are your land rights. These are the conditions. Go on into the market. If you worry that Sipo will sell the land next week, then put a first right of refusal. Then you will be the first buyer there. But I don't think that we are practically there. I think the political issues around land gets to be elevated more than the realities and the fact that the government has the land. And another point is the right one that you are are putting up because more than two-thirds of South Africans are urbanizing. So we have to think about other ways rather than largely farming. Maybe there is really land hunger in the urban areas, but even there, I don't think we are addressing the issues much more pointed and effective way. Still to come in this EPSA Insights podcast. Commercialization is the way to go and all of the new black farmers, we have to set them up to say, okay, how can you participate in the market, see other resources that are available? But after five years or so, somebody has to show some entrepreneurial spirit and be able to show if they can run the entity. APSA Insights. Just to underscore the point about land tenure and security, land prices, agricultural land prices are rising faster than almost any other asset class. I mean, I was just looking at some figures the other day on price per hectare of prime free state agricultural land. And you just see over the last seven or eight years throughout all of the political noise, prices have been going stratospheric. Prices probably doubled in the last seven or eight years. Yeah, 100%. And then imagine then if those ownership on those people that are there, they have collateral, they are able to get good investments there. And I think one thing we have been lucky about Bruce as South Africa is that in the midst of all of the uncertainty that has been happening around land policy, the sector on its own, South Africa's agricultural sector, has been solid, doubled uh, in value and volumes terms 
since 1994. Employment has been solid. Uh, exports have been solid. Investments and embracing technology, it has been good. Now, the question is to say, how do we make sure that we don't distract this momentum that has been there, but rather we bring new players in, utilizing some of the underutilized land parcels, which is where I think policy should actually enhance on. And this is the great difficulty because agriculture is becoming increasingly industrialized, whereas 30 or 40 years ago, you could have farmed 500 hectares and subsisted as a commercial farmer and had a good life on 500 hectares. Today, you've got farmers who are sort of, if you don't have 20,000 hectares and you're not running teams of tractors and teams of implements and teams of staff going from one farm to another to another and, and chasing the seasons and chasing the rainfall, well, then you're not that viable. I don't know how anybody hopes to break into commercial agriculture now, certainly not in the way it's being practiced right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I mean, the reality is if you are farming uh, uh, somewhere in Free State, you are competing with someone in Sinaloa, Mexico. And the very same points that we discussed uh, earlier to say mm-hmm. what in, in, in Brazil, Argentina is affecting you. So it's about how do you then in South Africa become much more competitive? And I think that commercialization, which is uh, to underscore the point you, you have just made, is the way to go. And uh, all of the new black farmers that are coming in, we have to set them up to say, okay, how can you be a commercial black farmer, participate in the market, see other resources that are available like anybody else. If the state does us assist, it assist at the entrance level. But after five years or so, somebody has to show some entrepreneurial spirit and be able to show if they can run the entity. But it's a massively expensive process. Not only do you have to require the land, but you have to prepare the land. You have to then have the capital in order to plant your first, second, and possibly third crop because <laughs> the first two might fail. Um, and this comes with enormous burdens of responsibility on the person that you're placing onto the land who said, yes, please, I'd love the opportunity. But then also on an entire financial system, which is predicated on people being able to pay back the loans that are given to them. And the last thing banks want to do is become holders of massive agricultural land. They don't want residential property, never mind agricultural land. Um, it's a really complex and difficult topic, which is possibly why agriculture seems to be rumbling on as if there's actually nothing going on in the background. And I think, Bruce, um, uh, to, to, to the point you're making, the key thing going forward is that we have these three pillars of land reform in South Africa, tenure, uh, restitution and redistribution. For restitution and, and tenure, we put those aside for a moment, but for redistribution, which is where then the state uh, needs to be much more active to correct some of the mistakes uh, that, that you're highlighting or maybe the risk that you are highlighting, selecting the right people for the piece of land. And how do you select then the right piece of land? We already now, for example, have a land reform beneficiary selection criteria, which emanates from the work of the land reform and agriculture presidential panel. Now it's about utilizing that beneficiary uh, policy to select the right person who not only show entrepreneurial spirit in terms of farming, but also on the managerial side of the farming entity. Um, And I think that's where we have to be rigorous to get someone who will be able to be the right jockey and run a serious farming business successfully. When we look at uh, the complexity of who gets land where and when and how, even if you go back just to 1913, it's over 100 years since the, uh, since the Native Land Act and generations have passed and generations have grown uh, as well. There is a place in Cape Town, a big checkers superstore is built on a site 
um, that uh, people, a Muslim family was taken off in, uh, in probably the 1930s or 1940s. That family has been given back the land and has now leased that to checkers and that the revenues from that are going to educating future generations of children. It, it's about being smart. I mean, there's, there's a story of a family in the Kruger Park, for example, who've built a massive lodge on land that was incorporated into the Kruger Park when that was created. Um, and they're now running a lodge for the benefit of communities. And, and it's becoming very, very smart about how you say, right, there, you know, there were 20 of us 100 years ago. There are now two or 300 of us. How on earth do we make this work for the greatest number of people um, in a way that is fair, uh, in a way that is going to be sustainable? And that's, I suppose, the great challenge of land restitution into the future. Yeah, I mean, 100 percent, that, that's the great, a great challenge. And unfortunately, I mean, if you look back um, 1994 up until today, some of the mistakes we have made, uh, again, on, particularly on a redistribution side, and the, 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 is that we had favored people who had more political connections, uh, rich black men. And I mean, I'm not just making up those statements. Uh, the work by Tembega Kepe and Ruth Hall uh, published a paper which pretty much showed uh, that research. Now, it's about how do you correct those measures and really make sure that their story about land reform, it's not only just about re- the restorative justice question only. We are sitting in a slow growth slump. You are addressing two goals, economic growth and job creation and also restorative justice. Then how do you balance those two pillars in your quest for progress? And I think that's the difficult things for policymakers. It's difficult, but it's not impossible, is it? I mean, you've sat on the presidential advisory board on land with a, a bunch of other very, very clever people. Are you stuck or do you think you've got a path? No, I think there is a path for 100%, but it's about then the political will following through that. Because obviously when you're sitting in advisory positions, you do write some of these things. You don't know what your what political imperatives your principal do face. But I do think that uh, it's about time now we move through that. I mean, it's the same discussion when you're looking at the former homelands areas. Some of us are from those areas. We've grew up from those areas looking that way, and we haven't seen much uh, economic activity. It's about now to say, okay, let's look in these areas in line with some of the government land. What changes can we make on the land governance? And we've made those submissions. And I think it's about time to put test cases and realize that it's about time to see progress and some economic activity in all of these areas. I get a sense that you're actually quite optimistic that it it may be three steps forward and two steps back, but there is gradual process and you are actually making headway. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we have no other way but to be optimistic. We only have one passport. It's a green one. So we have to get this country to work. Wandile Sitobo, thank you very much indeed. Wandile is an agricultural economist. Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, matching foresight with sustainable possibilities. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. For more, visit apsainsights.co.za.